Well, family, we get to start a new book tonight. Everybody ready? Yeah, amen. Book of Acts. Turn, turn there, if you would, to the book of Acts. Known as the Acts of the Apostle. Known as maybe the Gospel of Luke, Volume 2 is another way to look at it. Authored by Luke. And it fills in a whole bunch of the details As we dig in tonight, as we begin this series, this is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit through the early church. And so as we begin this amazing book, we'll look at the first eight verses tonight to some degree. We'll finish those up next week. But we're digging into what I think is, from a practical standpoint, as far as the church is concerned, I'm talking about us as a corporate body. There's so much that we can learn from the book of Acts. It is this important kind of blueprint, if you will, for how we're to function. And there's some key things in the book of Acts that we find in the very beginning chapters that help us really understand what church is about, why we're here, what the important things are. Because church, especially in our world, has become a lot of things that I think God probably either finds less important than we do, or maybe he doesn't want us to be engaged in it all. The church has become kind of a lot of things to a lot of people, and in some cases it's become the very thing that God probably doesn't want it to become. And that's simply a social club, a place where people come together and kind of hang out because they have a a like-type worldview. Sometimes the church is accused of being a, a place where uh, a political party is pre- predominant, come, kind of comes into view, a certain set of social values. And yet, here in the book of Acts, we, we find none of that. We find a very diverse group of people whom, until Jesus came onto the scene, probably didn't even like each other, much less did they hang out together. Matter of fact, they may have hated each other rather than spending time together. And so it's an important book for us to study. George Lucas was asked, uh, he was being interviewed on CNN a number of years ago, and he was asked about the success of the Star Wars movies and why uh, they they really have kind of grasped now a couple of generations. This will tell you exactly how old the movies are and how old Connie and I are. Uh, we, we actually went to the very first screen of the very first Star Wars movie uh, when they still had, you know, everything in, in Panavision. And, and it was this huge, gigantic premiere to where people wrapped around this movie theater in Mission Valley down in San Diego like three or four times, and you had to get tickets ahead of time. And, and, and I remember thinking, and now you look at the, the production values in the first Star Wars movies, and you're kind of like, I actually watched that? You know, it looks worse than most of our television special effects now. But he said the secret to a great movie is that it begins with an explosive introduction and then somehow works its way to an even larger climax. That is not the book of Acts. The book of Acts may be exactly the opposite of that. Matter of fact, it starts with what we could kind of call a church board meeting or a a church meeting where a bunch of the guys are getting together 
to discuss the replacement for Judas, who has now died because of being a traitor to the Lord. And so it kind of becomes this, what is the Lord trying to do thing for us here in the initial chapter? And so as we dig in tonight, the Acts of the Apostles, we'll pick up here shortly in verse 1, but let's pray and ask God to give us a real dose of the Spirit's work tonight. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you work in our lives and in the church, in the world. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to inhabit this place. Lord, we know that we're indwelt, but we need to be overflowed. We need your power in this world to be able to function as you have called us to be. Lord, we need that Holy Spirit dunamis power, that dynamite, that explosive power to do great and mighty things for your kingdom. And we pray that you would come upon us now afresh and anew and overflow us. Would your word jump, Lord, from these pages and directly into our hearts and minds where it can affect us for your kingdom purposes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, Amen. If you look at this story, the interesting thing here, some people will ask, well, how do we know Luke wrote it? It's one of the very few books that actually doesn't have much argumentation in the early church. So if you go back to the church fathers, Eusebius and Origen and Tertullian and Clement of Rome, these guys who wrote just a century or two after the Lord Jesus was on this earth, There is absolutely no dissension amongst them that the author of this book is Luke. And when you get to the internal evidence, you're going to find that Luke uses the word we several times. We know that Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul, and as he's talking about these things that Paul does, when he uses we, uh, it could only mean that he was there with the Apostle Paul, and we know who that person is because Paul himself tells us. And so the author of this book is Dr. Luke. And it's interesting when you look at it, because when you think about this seemingly boring introduction that we're going to get, he's writing a a volume of work that, that Luke has really started in his gospel. And when he leaves the end of his gospel, he leaves the disciples in Jerusalem, constantly at the temple, And they are seeking the face of the Lord. And so you would ask yourself the question, what happens next? Well, we're going to find that out in the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to find out exactly what does happen. And so we might, as I said, call this really Luke 2, if you will. It's not named so because there's so much in it that pertains to all of the disciples and not just Luke himself. And It begins by opening up with this man, Theophilus, and we don't know exactly who he was. We don't even know actually if he was a believer. It's highly likely he was. But it seems as though he's accompanying uh, Paul and Luke to to see some important Roman official. Uh, It is likely that he saw it at least from a seeker's perspective. In other words, he was looking to see who this Jesus is. And that is really kind of a key theme here in the book of Acts. Because most of the book of Acts takes place, at least in part, in a hostile environment. In other words, there are people who are genuinely seeking the Lord, and you can clearly see the enemies of God, and they are everywhere. 
And so Paul gets into trouble, the disciples get into trouble, Peter almost immediately gets into trouble, as you can possibly imagine. Peter's pretty famous for sticking his foot in his mouth. And so there's no lack of trouble for the early church. The early church is preaching a message that's based on uh, this Jewish Messiah that's come, he's died, uh, he's been buried in the grave, he's now been raised up, and he's going to be seen by eyewitnesses. The book of Acts records this, as does the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to kind of pick up where Luke 25 leaves off with the believers in the temple praising God. And so that story is going to now get explained. And when you think about it, if you were to look at the Gospels, and specifically you look at Luke's Gospel, you'd be pretty freaked out if just all of a sudden you kind of opened your Bible and you find that the Gospels made its way all the way to Rome, and you have no idea how it got there, because the last Gospel really closes with the believers in Jerusalem praising God. And that's a pretty small group of people in a small area about 1,400 miles away from Rome with an ocean journey uh, in view and a whole bunch of land travel. And so this really fills in the gap of what was being done during that time as the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem because the early church really was headquartered there and is going to make its way uh, now off into the rest of the world. And we see that the gospel Uh, of Luke that records what Jesus began to both do and teach, Um, we we see this beautiful picture of how Luke kind of explains what Jesus has been doing. And and so remember that Jesus is kind of passing the torch, if you will, to the disciples. And so we need to find out what it is the disciples then went on to do. And we're going to get that in the book of Acts. And so you're going to get to meet all these incredible people that are responsible for the faith that we commonly now share when we place our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And so as the the Holy Spirit begins to work, the the gospel records uh, how this message will make it to Rome. The book of Acts is the primary account of how the Holy Spirit does these things. When you go back to the gospel of Luke and Luke's first book, it's what Jesus did He taught how he acted through his own physical body. And then when we get to the book of Acts, we find what he does through his spiritual body, the church. And so in the gospel, we see Jesus physically doing it. And when we get to the book of Acts, we see the church doing it under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's an important distinction to make because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, no church will ever have power. No Holy Spirit in the church, you may have tremendous, solid doctrine. You may be able to translate the truths of what it means to be a believer, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, those words are virtually empty apart from the truth that's contained in them. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that works in this world. And we're going to go over several pieces of that puzzle tonight to set the stage for the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Congregations today, just like ours, can learn a lot from that early church because they didn't have all the trappings that we have. As we came in tonight, I mean, we've got this incredible sound system and all this technology and PowerPoint and slides and all those things. Now imagine that the early church 
as it began in Jerusalem, was likely hundreds, maybe a few thousand people at the most. They had none of what we have. Nobody was wandering around with a sound system. Nobody was being recorded. There was no video blogs. There was no social media. There was no amplification of sound of any kind. There was no way for you to record messages and put them online or on a radio. There was no radio. None of those things existed. And yet that small beginning caused the gospel to go out to the entire known world. There was another power source, and it wasn't radio, and it wasn't television, it wasn't social media, it was not the internet, it was not books and publishing, it was the work of the Holy Spirit in the handful of believers that truly believed that Jesus Christ was the Savior of all of the earth, and that he was their Lord. And so they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Not by programs, Amen? Not, not, not by, you know, fancy buildings and all this kind of, we're blessed to be in a place like this. But you know what? The Holy Spirit could do all the work that we're doing right here with none of these things and do it even better than we're doing it now. The Holy Spirit is very capable and immensely powerful. The Holy Spirit is the empowering entity of the, of the Trinity that, that put the worlds into motion, empowered the entire universe. And so as we think on these things, we start with the business meeting in Acts chapter 1. It's kind of the unfinished business. And they're getting ready for Pentecost. And so it's a, it's a great time for us to really try and figure out some concepts. What did they actually believe? Every church, it's important that we follow that example. And we get lost in that. You know, you have today, and I, I talk to pastors all the time. They're all over the country, all over the world for that matter. And I get probably eh, at least two or three books a month that are sent to me, just being the pastor of this church, and we have a fairly big footprint in the world. And so when you know people find out that we have as many people that attend here as we do, they're often trying to influence me with programs. And so they'll send me their book, and I have gotten books on everything that you can imagine, like the six spheres of influence that every church ought to have. And you read through it, and there's not one of them that has anything to do with the Holy Spirit. It talks about community, and it talks about, you know, home groups, and it talks about these things. None of these things are bad, by the way. But home groups without the Holy Spirit, not going to go very far. A sense of community without that community being empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you're claiming to be the church that is the representation of Christ on this earth, then you better be powered the same way that Jesus was powered, and that was by the Holy Spirit. Get all kinds of stuff. What does church look like? Well, here's the four things that I think you can draw from the book of Acts as we begin our study in this book that are essential from the Word of God, from what the book of Acts tells us, the four essential things that without fail and without question, every church, if you claim to be a Bible-believing, a thriving church, you must have these four things. Number one, the power of the Word of God. You're going to see that immediately in chapter 2. This incredible sense that speaking forth the Word of God can transform people's lives. And it's not the messenger, it's the message. It's not the person who brings it, 
It's the one who spoke it into existence. The Holy Spirit is the author of all Scripture. The Apostle Paul did not write the books that bear his name. The Holy Spirit wrote those books. Paul was simply the human vessel through which those words were recorded. They were authored by God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. For all Scripture is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit spoke forth the word of God through people's lives. And so every church, if it's going to be a church that honors the Lord, must also honor the word of God. A second thing, and we'll see this immediately here in the book of Acts, is the necessity of the power of the Holy Spirit. When you think about what they really believed, they they were not trusting in church programs. They weren't trusting in their church building. They weren't trusting in their church budget. Matter of fact, they didn't have a church budget. Matter of fact, they didn't have professional pastors who got paid. The Apostle Paul makes that clear in his own life that he maintained his skill as a tent maker so that he would not be a burden on any body that he ministered to. Our day and time, it's different in the fact that we do have those of us who are in ministry full time and we spend, you know, 60 hours in a building like this a week doing the things that we need to do uh, to minister to the, to the body. So it is a little bit different, but they relied on the power of the Holy Spirit, not on anything else. They didn't have Bible colleges. They didn't take online courses. They had no library that they could go to. Think about it for a second. No one owned a Bible. Nobody did. Not even the apostles. They weren't walking around with a Bible going, oh, look, I'll just look it up right here. They they couldn't Google it to figure out what, what they needed to say. They had to trust that the Holy Spirit was going to speak to them in the moment, and the words they spoke came forth as the oracles of God. And so they trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit. They also didn't have all the things that we rely on. They relied on the power of prayer. They actually sought Jehovah God for everything they had need of. And you could add to that as a subcategory that they had faith. That prayer was prayer of faith. It was prayer that believed that not only did God hear, but God would in his time and by his will and for his purpose, he would answer. They were people of prayer. You see, this is not complex, is it? And yet, so much of the church misses these things. Well, they're about all kinds of other stuff, and we have lots of other stuff going on. And praise God, we have the ability to do those other things. But make no mistake, these things are the main things. It's not all the programs. It's not the stuff. It's these things that are still the main things for the church today. A prayerless church will be a powerless church. A powerless church will not be a productive church. A church that's founded on the word has the instruction that it needs. If you want a roadmap, you want a blueprint, you're getting, going to get that through the word of God. And a fourth thing, they had the power of the unity of the spirit and fellowship. They had unity. They weren't busy 
dickering with each other and haggling with each other and fighting each other and trying to discern who was right and who was wrong. They needed each other to even function in this world. And I think we've lost some of that as as the church. And I'm talking very specifically about the true church. Not every church that names itself a church, but the true church. Where these four things are true. Where there is a sanctity of the word of God. Where there is a reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. Where there is a church that is praying constantly for everything. And where there is a church that fellowships together and has unity in the spirit. And thereby is bound together in peace. Every church that's God's church has those things. If you don't have those things in a church, you need to ask yourself the simple question, why not? Because as far as the book of Acts is concerned, these are the four important things. And without them, I I would suggest to you that you you have yourself a pretty tough dilemma of really saying that you're part of the real church. If your whole mission is some man-made concoction of what you ought to be and how you ought to look and programs, again, none of those programs are inherently wrong or necessarily uh, false in any way, shape, or form. But if they exclude the Word of God, the power of the Word, if they exclude the power of the Holy Spirit, if they exclude the power of prayer, if they exclude the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace and fellowship, if those things get kicked out for program, you got the wrong program. We'll see that in the book of Acts. I want you to know something that not all of these people that were called disciples at that time, not all of his followers were present there at Pentecost, but we do know that there was at least 120 of them that were there at Pentecost, and we know that Jesus met with a group of 500 uh, there from what Paul would write to the church at Corinth. So there were a couple of group meetings, but other than that, These people got so lit on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit in their own individual lives that they weren't waiting around for somebody to give them instruction. They got their instructions direct from God. And they were ready to go. And they had what they needed. And though biblical scholars don't even agree about what the population of the land of Palestine was at that time, on one hand, the lower end, uh, the the lowest I've ever seen is around 600,000 in the entire region of Palestine. So if you looked at your world map today and you began to kind of ponder the region that we call the Middle East, it would be all of Lebanon, all of Syria, all of Jordan, all of Israel proper itself, uh, a whole bunch of northern Egypt and part of Saudi Arabia and the Sinai. And so the land of Palestine, there might have been 600 to maybe 4 million people in that entire region. It wasn't a great populous place and yet... Through those four things, through the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of prayer, unity and fellowship in the spirit, the entire world was transformed. And you all are a part of what happened through that group of people at that time. That's staggering. That is a monumental work. Can you imagine being a part of a ministry you know, we look around, there, there are way more of us in this sanctuary tonight than there were in that upper room. Think about it for a second. When we get to the day of Pentecost, there are way more people in here than there were in that upper room. Those initial, that initial group upon whom the power of the Holy Spirit fell, and they just said, 
I'm doing whatever God tells me to do, and I'm going to do it with all that I have. And they turned the world upside down. They transformed the entire world. That's the story of the book of Acts. They believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. And their secret is also our secret. Except it's not supposed to be a secret. It's supposed to be available for anyone who asks. We're supposed to be able to tell them what the secret is. And so verse 1, we'll look at the first eight verses tonight. The first thing that we, they, we see is they believed in the risen Christ. Verse 1 here in Acts 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, so it's speaking of there being a former account by this particular author who is not named here in this book. He says, I made a former account, and he names this man Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach, we happen to know that that's exactly how Luke's gospel opens. All the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And so Luke is in a way telling us it's him. Until the day that he was taken up. So we know that the book of Acts includes that period of time From when Jesus began to work, he imparted that truth to the disciples to the time that he ascended into heaven. And so we're going to get some of the details about what happened after the resurrection. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so we see that by the power of the Holy Spirit, notice this, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave commandments to the apostles. So if Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was doing what Jesus was doing, how much more do you think we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? If Jesus was relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to instruct these apostles, these Knuckleheads for Christ, KFC, right? Whenever you see KFC, just think, knuckleheads for Christ, you're part of that club. The Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And you remember that Luke's gospel records, as do all of the gospel authors, the kingdom parables. So Jesus had been speaking about the kingdom. Remember at the very end of the gospel, they had still not gotten it. They're still going, James and John are like, who's going to be the greatest when your kingdom comes? And I'll sit on your right and you you can sit on the left. And mom gets involved and they're all haggling and arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they still don't have it. And so this picks up with the rest of the instructions to the guys. And he's showing himself visibly. So they believed in the risen Christ. They believed in the risen Christ. So amazingly important that we get that. You see, a lot of people talk about Jesus almost in no other sense than he was simply a historical figure. Jesus is not just a historical figure. He is our risen Savior and Lord, and he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us in heaven. He is risen. Amen? 
But we celebrated Easter. Not kind of sort of we think maybe if he's not risen, we're all still dead in our trespasses and sins. Because it means the price has not been paid for your sin, and thereby you are not righteous in Christ. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins. We believe they believed in the risen Christ. It's absolutely essential. There are things that we call essential doctrines of the faith. And one is, Jesus Christ is risen. To the glory of God the Father. Amen? That's why he said, Upon his son, he looked and he said, I am well pleased. It's finished. Verse 4, he goes on. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said. Now who said this? None other than Jesus. Amen? Amen. You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus told them that they were to go to Jerusalem, they were to wait, and that upon them they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's not baptized as in water baptized, but baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. Immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit will set the stage for the work of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, in just a few moments. And therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now it makes sense as to why the disciples, James and John, were arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They're thinking, I'll be the four-star general, and you can be the three-star general. I'll be the chief of staff, and you can be the vice You can see it. They're thinking there would be a literal kingdom in which Jesus would reign as king. And they're waiting, okay, you're going to do it today? You're going to wipe out Rome right now? You're going to get this yoke of oppression off our back? They believe what the Old Testament said about Messiah. That he would rule with a rod of iron. That he would come and he would set the captives. He was, they were believing every bit of it. All that Isaiah had said. All that Daniel said. All that Ezekiel said. Zechariah had said. Name the prophet. And they believed it. The only problem was is they had the type of kingdom wrong. Because Jesus would tell them, for my kingdom is not of this world and so they were waiting jesus speaking to them for it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father has put in his own authority you're not going to know the day and the time you're not going to know all that you really want to know but you're going to know what you need to know But you shall receive power, you'll receive dunamis, that stored energy, that power that will come upon you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. That word witnesses there is exactly the same word as martyr. It's identical. You can translate it either way into English. You shall be a martyr 
to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we find the disciples waiting. Jesus had told them that he would send the paraclete, the helper, the helpmate, the one who would come alongside, the advocate would come and speak to them in a new sense of power. And after his resurrection, as Jesus remains these 40 days on earth, he's really setting the stage to kind of turn these guys uh, loose. He'd already opened their mind to understand the Old Testament message about himself. We can see that in the end of Luke's gospel. But there were other lessons they needed to learn before they launched out into ministry. I can tell you, one of the things that occurs when people go to Bible college, when they graduate from Bible college, they think that the learning is sufficient to prepare them for ministry. And while it is an essential component part, one could even say that to some degree that part of it is necessary, either in that setting or in some other setting where you're learning the, the doctrines of the faith. You're learning to trust the Word of God. You're learning to counsel using God's Word. All those things are essentials in that sense. What you can't be taught, because there is no class that can do it, is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's between you and the person of the Holy Spirit. God, the Spirit. And so they had kind of been to Bible college. They'd traveled around with Jesus. They had gone with him through all the classes. They sat while Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. Amen? That would have been pretty awesome. Jesus is preaching the Beatitudes. I'd like to have him uh, as my teacher in Bible college to teach me what it means to have those Beatitudes in my life. Those things that bring blessedness to us. They'd been through all that. So in that sense, they had the knowledge, but they did not yet have the power. And they needed to learn that particular lesson. And the book of Acts records this for us. Preparation was there. They'd been through some of the things that they needed to do. And and during this time, it's kind of interesting as we we go through it. You're going to see that Jesus kind of appears and then disappears, and he's here for a moment, and he's gone. And this is a wonderful way, and I can, I can equate it to my time in business. One of the things that you do as a business owner, especially in construction, and those, those types of industries, probably most industries are really like that, is that you don't stay on the job all day, because when you do, your employees turn immediately to you to solve every single problem. And so every time there's a question about anything that's getting done, all of them will stop and they'll go get the owner of the company and they'll say, come over here and tell us how to do that. And so Jesus, just like a good employer, gets them rolling. He starts them on the job. He shows up in the morning, gets them settled into their daily work, and then he disappears. And sometimes he goes away for several days. And he comes back to see how his boys are doing to see what's going on in their lives and how they've handled those problems. And then he corrects. Because the best way for us to learn almost anything is to learn it experientially, amen? Hands-on is way better than just book. You, you can learn a lot from a book. And I'm not downplaying the, the power of learning from the written word, from the page. But when you have to apply it, 
it sticks a lot deeper than someone just simply instructs you, this is what this is going to look like. You can get that from a manual, but that does not make you an expert. When you become an expert is when you've gone through all the problems, you've stood there in the gap, and the whole thing is on you, and you make the correct decisions with the knowledge that you have. And so the Lord's going to do that. A second thing, they believed in the reality of his resurrection. They didn't just believe in the risen Christ. They believed in the reality of what actually happened. That he was resurrected. He was dead and he was now alive. You see, because the common thought of the day was that he never died. That somehow he had survived the crucifixion. They thought, well, you know, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as it looked. Even though they nailed him to a cross, he expired on the cross, he could have maybe swooned or something. Maybe he just kind of went into a trance and they took him down, but he wasn't really dead. And so verse 3 tells us that they believed that he pre- they, so much so that he presented himself to them alive after suffering these many things, and offering them infallible proof. Now, we're not told what those infallible proofs are. It's kind of interesting. You, you would think that Luke would, you know, he'd list all the medical things. He was a doctor, and he, he could have said, well, you know, Jesus w- was pierced through his hands and his feet, and then a spear thrust into his side. You know, he, he was hypovolemic. He didn't have enough blood volume, and thereby his heart rate dropped and eventually expired because of the medical condition. He could have said those things, but that isn't what he says. He just says many infallible proofs. What were they? Oh, we know some of them. We know what Thomas got to do. (laughs) Here, stick your finger in my side. We know they got to touch Jesus. And he wasn't a cold, dead Jesus. He's a very much alive Jesus. He ate a meal with the disciples. He goes to the lake, and they're they're sitting there. We're going to see this. They go back to fishing. They have so little faith that they go back to the old ways. And Jesus shows up and cooks breakfast for them. Infallible proofs because they had seen Jesus die. And so they knew that the only way that he could be with them was he was resurrected from the dead. Not just risen from the grave because that could could have been that somehow he survived all that torture. But they believed he was dead and was now alive. The resurrection. Whatever proofs he gave to them, very, very convincing in that message. Officially, the Jewish positions, the disciples actually had stolen the body from the tomb. Matthew 28 kind of records that picture for us. And believers had to be able to refute that. If they were going to pass along this message of the risen Savior, then they had to believe he was risen. They had to believe that he had been dead and was now alive. And Jesus does that. By their words, by their walk, by their mighty works, the believers would tell tell the whole world that Jesus was alive. And in fact, remember that Jesus said to the Jewish people, you remember he was asked for a sign. You remember what the sign was? You're a wicked and a perverse generation and no sign will be given unto you except the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Three days in the belly of the whale, barfed up on the beach, very much alive. I don't know what whale stomach acid is like, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be good for you if you're in the belly of a whale for three days. 
Jesus said, that's the sign you're going to get. He said that in Matthew 12. They also believed in the, his coming kingdom. It's important things for us to believe. As he was talking about the, these things of the coming kingdom, he's saying, look, this is what it's going to look like. And so he gives them all these kingdom principles. and They're going, love your neighbors. Are you nuts? Do good to those who persecute you and spitefully use you? You see, he gave them such extreme commands that there's only one way that those things could be true all the time, and that's if the kingdom isn't the kingdom of this world. Amen? And so he says, I'm going to show you my kingdom, the reign of Christ, and we have that partially now in our hearts right now, tonight. The kingdom of God is in you. You have partially what we'll have one day fully. As we walk with the Lord, you're, you're going to wake up one day in glory, and we're going to have all of it. Right now, we have part of it. And we have a little bit of that, that kingdom life. We could have all of it if we had enough faith to believe in all of it and receive it. But tonight, we can see it in a mirror dimly, as the Apostle Paul said. But one day, we're going to see him face to face. And one day, he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives, and one day, he's going to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. And a little clue for those that don't think about this much. There is no throne right now in Jerusalem because there is no temple in Jerusalem. There is no palace in Jerusalem, but one day there's going to be a temple on the Temple Mount and Jesus is going to rule in it. Amen? It's coming. They didn't realize that there had to be first a spiritual change in their life. They were looking for just a condition change in their life. A lot of people come to church just looking for a condition change. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with that initially. I think God draws people to himself by promising a conditional change as well. But the real change is when we change from children of darkness to children of light. When we go from that walking apart from God to walking with God hand in hand. And so we have to switch kingdoms. We, we, were, we were aligned with the kingdom of this world and we switch kingdoms, and we say, okay, God, you're now my Lord. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saying, you're my king. You're my master. And what you say, I will do. And so he pronounces to them that this kingdom is going to come, and they believed it. And he spoke the things pertaining to the kingdom of God to them. And a fourth thing, and we'll pick up in verse 8, they believed in the person and they believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. On being assembled together, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait to the prompt for the promise of the Father, which he had already told them. For you have heard me say, or heard from me, for John truly baptized with water. Remember what John said? Jesus comes down to the river Jordan. John is in the water. He's baptizing other people. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus said, John, I want you to baptize me. And he said, oh, no, it is not me that should baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, it is needful. And so Jesus is baptized. What happens at Jesus' baptism? The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Tongues of fire lit on Jesus, and Jesus 
in his physical flesh, remember he was fully God and fully man, for that fleshly body that he inhabited, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. And he was immediately driven away into the wilderness to be tempted. You see, if you want to survive those kinds of temptations, you want to thrive in that environment, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so they're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And therefore, when they had come together and they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore your king? So they told him, about, he's been told, that he, Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom that's going to come. He even prayed, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He prays this unbelievable high priestly prayer. Your kingdom, Father God, come to this earth. The disciples are going, is it now? We're going to start tonight? We're going to take over Jerusalem? We're going to finally kick these rotten Romans out of our hometown? And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about, guys. And he says, not for you to know. Seasons that the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. The kind of power that you need, guys, is not an army. The kind of power that you need is not prosperity. The kind of power is not a bigger home or a better job. The kind of power that you need is the dynamis power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what you're waiting for. You're not waiting for me to publish a book. You're not waiting to where you, you know, I'm not going to give you an autographed picture. But you can carry around and say, look, I met Jesus. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. He will have come upon you. And then you can be my witnesses. Martyrs for me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I want to give you just a few things to kind of wrap this up tonight. And we'll bring the worship team back up in just a couple of minutes. The Holy Spirit works in us in three very distinct ways. Works in us and around us. And people often get confused, and I hope I can make this very simple for you. They're described in in verbs that are used in our Bibles that help us understand how the Holy Spirit is at work. The first word that we, we see that we often have translated in our English is either with or alongside. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit in this world is to come alongside. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is also the teacher. So when you read the word, it is the Holy Spirit that has come para alongside of you to help instruct you that this is truth and files it away in your mental filing system in a way that you can now use it. The Holy Spirit does that. That's the Holy Spirit along or with us reveals to us the work of God, adds to all of the things that we see, the testimony of God. When you look at the stars and you read your Bible and you say the moon and the stars, these things are the handiwork of God. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts you and convinces you that that is true. That is the word with or alongside. It is the Greek word para. And so, That is one way that the Holy Spirit works in this world. A second way that the Holy Spirit works, and it happens to every one of us who's named the name of Jesus. When we say the Holy Spirit is in us, it's actually E-N in the Greek language. 
And it means in or inside of or indwelt. And so the Holy Spirit works in you by coming in and being that internal guiding factor in your life. So it's not just outside of you, it's not alongside of you, it's not with, it's actually inside of you that you are literally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That happens the moment you get saved. That's part of the package deal of us coming to faith in Christ. One of the things that happens to us is we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there is a third way, and it is that third way that comes into view here in the book of Acts. And as the Greek prefix, it's actually a verb, and it's used in a verb form, and it is epi. So if you're one of those people that has an epi pin, that's actually the same Greek word. That pin means to come upon or over. So when you are overcome by some anaphylaxis, and you've maybe gotten a bee sting, or you have a peanut allergy, and you have become overcome, you need an epi pin. You need to quickly grab that epinephrine and and hit yourself with it, and that's going to be the power that stops you from having anaphylaxis and kills you. And in very much the same way, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us or over us, epi, we are overflowed by the work of the Spirit beyond what you actually need, and and it moves into that place that it becomes usable power for you at a future date and time, something that you're engaged in. And so three principal ways, para, alongside of or with, In, which is inside of you, and epi, which means on and overflowing. And so when you think of the work of the Spirit, notice what it says here. It says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come epi on you, upon, to overflow. Not just in, you got that when you got saved. Not just near and around, The whole world actually sees to some degree the work of the Holy Spirit in that regard. The Holy Spirit is testifying that Jesus is God everywhere. But upon you, bathing you in that work that God wants to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we see these three distinct ways, we actually see them in five unique works. And we'll wrap up with these things. Biblically speaking, the experience of the baptism, we we call it this mysterious thing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes people get confused because the same word that's used for baptism, as in water baptism, is used, baptizo. But it has a very different meaning. And I can describe it to you this way. One baptism that has many subsequent fillings to overflowing. In other words, you have to have the Spirit in you to be overflowed. Amen? You've got to have a place for the Spirit to get in if there's going to be anything that comes out. And so that baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the work that God wants to do in your life. That's why they're still waiting for it. They had the head knowledge. They were already disciples. They were already believers. So they had the in experience and they had the para experience. That Spirit had testified, they had believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had received Christ inside. The only thing that they didn't have was that epi experience, that overflowing, to be baptized with it, 
immersed in the Spirit's presence and power and purity. It literally, in that sense, means to be submerged in. The Holy Spirit's so great in you that the Holy Spirit flows out of you. We also see it uh, in the phrase to be filled. It points to an inner deep penetration into our lives. You, You see, you can have the work of the Spirit that saves you, but you can still be powerless for the day-to-day things that are going to confront you. You you can have the Holy Spirit in in a saving sense without having the Holy Spirit in an empowering sense. And the only way that you get that is by being immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a constant, repetitive thing that occurs over and over in our lives, and it's something that we ask for. Spirit, come upon me. And overflow me. Give me not just the para experience being around me. Don't just give me the in experience being inside of me, but give me that epi experience that overflows me. I've got so much of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in me that it now produces something out of me. We see then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's that overwhelming experience. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to sit underneath a waterfall. Uh, If you ever get that opportunity, and it's not a big one where you're going to drown, I'm not suggesting you should go to Niagara and try and sit underneath that, anything like that. But if you ever get the opportunity, maybe you go to Hawaii and you get one of the little waterfalls on the road to Hana, something like that, and you can sit in the back of one of those pools and get underneath the waterfalls. an interesting thing that happens. As you're sitting there, at first, it's just splashing down on you, and it's like this really, you know, just kind of wonderful experience of this water that just continues to cascade on you. But after a while, you realize this is more water than you really want, and you are being completely overwhelmed by that water. And unless you get out of the flow, you're going to keep getting more water than you need. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in that epi-sense coming and, and overflowing you. In other words, it's way more than you. You don't just need a shower. You're going to drown in the power of the Holy Spirit if you don't do something with it. And so that outpouring or that overflowing, it's the idea of abundance. We see also the falling of the Spirit. And this is a a suddenness with which these things happen. Most of us in here have had that instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit. You don't know how you're going to answer. And remember Jesus said, you don't need to ask the ask, but when you have the issue, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you and give you the answer that you need. It's going to be instantaneous. So that fourth distinct way the spirit comes upon us and it is instantaneous it is the falling of the holy spirit and the holy spirit then with forcefulness and power just gives you exactly what you need in that moment and i can tell you as as a pastor this is so essential because i don't have an answer for every single problem that comes to my door and were it not for the work of the holy spirit Uh, falling upon me afresh and anew, I would surely be empty because I have not been filled sufficiently to have all that I need for every moment of every day, so I need the Spirit to fall right now. This happens in those times of grief in people's lives when something's happened, and all of a sudden, you have the exact word they need to hear. And it came directly from God. Because the Holy Spirit spoke it into your life. And then a fifth ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
uh, the final of these works to come upon or to be clothed with. There are times in our lives when it is so wonderful because we are so in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's as if we have been cloaked with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, for those of you that are sci-fi freaks, you know, like the Romulan cloaking device. It's like there's this shield around the ship, and it can go everywhere and do anything. It's invisible to the other forces. And I don't want to get too mystical here, but there is a time when the Holy Spirit has cloaked us or clothed us or come upon in an active way, and it is a continuing endowment of that power that is protective. I've had this experience in the mission field. I've been in places like, I'm not supposed to be here, and if I stay here much longer, I'm going to die. And Lord, you need to get me out of here, because if you don't get me out of here, I am going to die right here, right now. And the Holy Spirit just kind of cloaks you and empowers you and kind of moves you in that Holy Spirit bubble to wherever you need to go and wherever you need to be and whatever you need to see and whatever you need to do. The Holy Spirit comes upon and clothes us. It's that endowment of the Spirit's presence over our lives. It's really like an investment, if you will, of the Holy Spirit in you. And it's sufficient to take care of whatever checks you're going to write. The Holy Spirit's got them. Boom, done. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we are indeed weakened beyond belief. And so... As, as we launch off into the meat of this next Sunday night, we're going to see the Holy Spirit working in these very, very ordinary men's lives. People about whom you would say, if you were starting a church, you would not have picked any of the disciples. You wouldn't. You'd have gone, There's no way. John, he's kind of like, he's like lover boy. We can't have him. He's just like, you know, we'll never get anything done with him. Peter's Mr. Impulsive, right? You've got an accountant. You've got all these people that you look at and it's just like, you know, to, to take the gospel message to the world, this is the best we can do? And yet, God not only chooses them and uses them, but he gives them the power that's necessary to get the job done. And he covers them and he falls on them and he overflows them and he fills them. He's inside of them. He's around them. The Holy Spirit is at work in the church, in the world. And the Holy Spirit is still at work in the church, in the world. And we are the beneficiaries of that very same power. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do what God has called us to do. Amen.